Welcome to the 349th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Meg Mitchell Moore, author of the novel Two Truths and a Lie. And stay tuned after the interview for a short excerpt from the audiobook of Two Truths and a Lie. Stay tuned for the interview. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S., Check out Libro.fm today. Well, welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Meg Mitchell Moore, author of the new novel, Two Truths and a Lie. Meg's previous novels include The Islanders, The Captain's Daughter, and others. Meg, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about your new novel, Two, Tru- Two Truths and a Lie, how would you describe the novel? I would describe it as an unabashedly summer book. It takes place in a coastal, the coastal town of Newburyport, Massachusetts, where I happen to live. And it takes place over the course of a summer, and it involves a, a group of sort of snarky mothers of 11-year-old girls and what happens when a stranger and her, her daughter come to town with a dark secret that they can't let out. And so do you remember the original idea that led you to write Two Truths and a Lie? I think this book, more than any of my others, started with the setting. I really wanted to set a summer book in my town because this summer is obviously an exception. But most summers, it's a really wonderful, it's still a wonderful place to be, but it is a very vibrant, lively community in the summer. And I really wanted to capture that. So usually I start with characters and situations. This time I started with settings, with the setting and tried to figure out who I could put in there and why they would be there. Well, Two Truths and a Lie is being marketed as a great beach read. What are some of your favorite beach reads? I always start with Ellen Hildebrand's summer book, whatever it is, every single summer. She's my favorite summer writer and probably always will be. And her new, this this year's book, 28 Summers, I just finished the other day, and it is absolutely fabulous. So every summer, Ellen Hildebrand means summer to me. So I always start there. This year, I also read a fantastic book called Beach Read, which uh, the author Emily Henry said when she was thinking of the title of it, she kept searching and searching and couldn't believe nobody else had called a book Beach Read before, but they hadn't. And that's a fab- another fabulous summer book. So 
this year, those are two of my go-tos. I don't always read, you know, summer books or beach books in the summer, but often I do. I also tend to read a lot of thrillers in the summer and I, I listen to a lot of audiobooks. So I listen to a lot of thrillers in the summer too, because those are uh, always sort of a quick read, but sus- suspenseful and, and keep you going. Sure. So what was it about Newburyport that made you want to set a novel there? It's such a one thing about New England, and you probably know this living in New England yourself, is that the winters can be so long and sometimes very dreary. And the springs are not that nice because it's mostly just rainy and muddy. And then summer comes and everything really opens up. And I love that. I love that sense of you wait all year for these three months. And so you really try to put as much as you can into that time. And we live near a lot of great beaches and there's a lot of people with boats and surfing and all kinds of, of, of backdrops that just make for really good scenes. So that's a lot of what I wanted to capture. And so what are your earliest memories of reading and books? My earliest memories of reading, I was always a reader. My, um, my, my parents are readers. My mom is a huge reader. My sister's a big reader. And we, we grew up actually without a lot of television watching. Obviously, there was no internet for a very long time. And we <laughs> didn't even have from the first four years of my life, we lived overseas and we didn't even have a TV. So I didn't grow up the way some kids do watching TV. We grew up reading. So I have just always, always, always read for pleasure. And it's the we moved around a lot when I was a kid because my dad was in the Navy. So every time we moved to a new town, the first thing my mom would do is would be take us to get our library cards. So that is just, it's just always been part of me. And when, when I think of my early books, I loved the Betsy Tasty Tid books when I was a girl. I loved them so much. And I still have my old copies and my daughters have read them. So that's a big memory for me. And then reading the Anne of Green Gables books, that's another big memory, just going through that whole series. So those are the two that always come to mind when people ask me that. Sure. So what was the path to publication for you to writing and publishing your first novel, The Arrivals? Had you always wanted to to be a writer? I had always wanted to be a writer. It took me a little while to admit, I guess, or try to write fiction. So it was in the back of my mind, but I didn't commit early. I didn't say I'm going to get an MFA or I'm going to try to do this right out of college. I sort of skirted around it for a while. I always did something near writing or writing, but not fiction. I wrote, I worked for some magazines early on. I was a copy editor for a while. I worked for a a website um, a long time ago and websites were brand new. I worked for the website of editor and publisher magazine. And then I was a copy editor and editor and a writer at a bunch of technology magazines for a few years, which was fantastic experience. And that whole time, I think I was thinking, I really want to be writing fiction, but I didn't, I just, it, it took me a long time to do it. So I was a freelance nonfiction writer for a few years and during that time, I finally thought, okay, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna write a novel, I actually have to write the novel. So I, so I, I finally committed that the time that it took to complete a book, which finally became the arrivals. But it took a while. I mean, I had to. I didn't have connections. I didn't have an agent. I didn't have any of that. So I had to start from scratch and um, you know query agents with that first novel until I found someone to take me on, which was not a short process. <laughs> and and what was the editing process like for the arrivals? Did you end up working with an editor and having to do a lot of revisions or or what was that process like? For the arrivals, I did a lot of editing when I first got my agent, who is Elizabeth Weed, her name is, and she's fantastic. She's been my agent the whole time. So when I think back to the book that she took me on as a client with, it was 
nothing like what the book ended up being. And she really helped guide me through a lot of those first revisions. And we did work. I, I worked with an outside editor, for a freelance editor for a while there too, to get it into shape. So by the time we sold that book, it sold really quickly and did not need a lot of editing. Um, any other book I've written since then has needed a lot more editing because I didn't go through that process early on. I end up doing that process now with my actual editor. So sometimes my agent, but always my editor. So it's still, the revising still takes as long. It's just at a different part of the process for me now than it used to be. Well, as you just mentioned, you worked as a nonfiction freelance writer um, for a variety of magazines and a website and technology magazines. How was it switching from you, for you from writing a nonfiction article to working on a novel in progress? I think in a way they're sort of compatible. I think it helped me a lot to have that nonfiction experience. It still helps me. I still think of all of my writing days in sort of a thousand word blocks. I'm either going to write a thousand words or 1500 words or sometimes 2000 words on a really good day. But I have that mentality, that deadline mentality that I've always had. And I think that really helps because it's so daunting to think of a whole novel and how am I, I going to write a hundred thousand word novel. But if you think, well, 500 words for 200 days and then you have it, there's so many different ways to break it down. So for me, that helps. And then the other thing that helps is I love to be edited. I'm very open to edits. I, my editor and I do a, we change a lot between the first draft and the second draft. And this is somebody I'm now working with my third book on. So I'm used to it. It doesn't really, I mean, some, you never want someone to tell you your whole book needs to be rewritten, but it doesn't scare me the way that I think it can be overwhelming for people who haven't gone through that. So it's certainly a change, but it's all writing, you know, and writing is still getting a story told, whether it's a true story or something made up. Sure. As you worked on that first novel, Arrivals, uh, were there any specific writing challenges that you had to kind of figure out or overcome, whether it be characterization or plotting or dialogue? Yeah, all, all of that. Well, probably not dialogue. <laughs> I remember I had the dialogue down on that one, but um Plot for sure. I still struggle with plot. In every one of my books, I struggle with plot. So that's my week. Everybody has a weak part. You know, if you're a triathlete, you're you're going to be better at the running than the swimming, or one of the things you're better at. I am pretty good at character setting a dialogue, and I have trouble with plot even now. So that was true back then. And then the other thing, when I look back to that early version, I always have multiple points of view in my books. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. In that book, I had so many points of view. I think think we eventually pared it down. I can't even remember now if it was three or four. I think three. I don't know. But I think I had probably seven. I had all people telling their side of the story and it just wasn't necessary. And some, an outside person had to say, you don't need this. This is ridiculous. So that was my big challenge from there. I think I had the general story in mind, but I really needed help to figure out how to get there. And so what has helped you with plotting as you've written multiple books? I think what's helped me is realizing that I'm never going to be natural at it. So I know that I will have to rewrite. And I know that if I have the characters down and the setting down, the plot will eventually come. So I don't think I've gotten that much better at it, maybe a little bit better. But I think what I've gotten better at is, is knowing that it's going to be okay, no matter what. And that probably won't change. I'm working on my seventh book right now. And I'm still I'm still dealing with some of that. So um, I think that's just that's just how I write. And I've come to terms with it. I, I tried for a little while thinking, okay, I'll outline everything. And then I won't have to change anything as I go through. But that doesn't work for me. And now I know that's not going to work for me. So that's okay. I know I'll get there eventually. Sure. And and so what is kind of the, the writing process like for you in terms of, you mentioned earlier with uh, your new novel, Two Truths and a Lie, you started with setting and knew you wanted to uh, set a book in Newburyport. Um, so, so what, if you can describe it, because I think some of it is just a little bit um, indescribable, but, but what, um, what is the process once you knew that you wanted to uh, set a book in Newburyport to, to, kind of come up with the, the characters and the plot? I can't remember exactly who I started with with this book, but there's one one of the points of view in this book is a 17-year-old girl named Alexa Thornhill, and I just love this girl. So I think I might have started writing her right away, and I knew that she had a secret that she didn't want to be discovered during the summer. And then I, I probably came up with the, the mother-daughter duo who come to town who also have a secret next and then I tried to tie them into the rest of the town. So it's really haphazard the way I go about it. I, I wish it weren't, but <laughs> it is. So I think, I think for that book, that's where I started. But sometimes when I get asked that question after a book has come out, I can't always remember the order of things. It sort of happens in a jumble. It's, it's just it's sort of like cooking. You have all these ingredients and you put them in, in a different order. So I don't always know, but I think that's where I started for this one. Right. Um, so before you, um, had your first novel published, The Arrivals, did you take any writing workshops? I did uh, not 
well, a little bit. I, I, I majored in English literature. I majored in English in college, and then I got a master's degree in English literature. So I had a lot of writing experience and a lot of reading experience, I, and so a lot of critical writing. I did not have a lot of fiction writing experience. And I took maybe a couple random workshops here and there, but I didn't really study it the way that somebody with an MFA studies it, for example. Sure. I went to the Breadloaf Writers Workshop um, before I wrote that first novel. And that was, that was my only, really my only experience with those fiction workshops that I know if you're an MFA student, you have all the time. So I had that once um, and it was really interesting, but I didn't have the, the two or three years of it that an MFA program brings. Right. So what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Oh, good questions. I just finished, I, I mentioned that I read a lot of, I mean, I listen to a lot of audiobooks. I just finished a fabulous book called Saint X on audio, which is a sort of mystery thriller that takes place um, with the disappearance of a girl in a Caribbean island. And um, But there's a lot more to the story. It's not just about that. There's a lot of um, societal and racial tensions that come to the surface. It's fantastic. So I just read that. Um, before that, I read the Ellen Hildebrand novel I mentioned. I keep a list. Now I can't remember what else I read. I just started the new book by Ann Tyler. And I'm going to read The Vanishing Half next because I've heard such wonderful things about that. I can't wait to read it. Great. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and Two Truths and a Lie? They can find me at MegMitchellMoore.com, on Instagram at MegMitchellMoore. I'm very I'm on Twitter, but I'm not very active on it. I think I'm Meg Mitchmore on there, but I'm not too active. And then I have a Facebook author page, which is also Meg Mitchellmore. So they can find me any of those places. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Meg Mitchell Moore, author of the new novel, Two Truths and a Lie. The novel is available now, so go buy a copy. And Meg, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Okay, great. Now, stay tuned for a short excerpt from the audiobook of Two Truths and a Lie by Meg Mitchell Moore, narrated by Courtney Patterson, published by Harper Audio, and available wherever audiobooks are sold. Later, we would remember that we first set eyes on Sherry Griffin on Sawyer's Beach on the first day of the first session of surf camp. From the beginning, we weren't sure she fit in. In fact, we weren't even sure how she got in. Surf camp sign-ups happened in April, and she said she and her daughter had only just moved here. Somebody had to have clued her in before she moved— or a child had dropped out, leaving a space open, and this newcomer had snapped it up. Perhaps she was savvier than she looked. We remembered that she asked about the best place to get a haircut for her daughter, whose hair was curly. Rebecca would know, Tammy said. She has a wave in her hair. She indicated the woman standing at the shoreline. Rebecca knows everything about the town, Esther added slyly and purposefully. And she's a planner. Oh, yes, Monica added. She's very organized. It was true. Rebecca decided when we would take our annual trip to Nantucket, where and when we would eat when we got there, and most important, who would go. It was Rebecca who coordinated the carefully curated shots of us in our white jeans. It was Rebecca who tastefully filtered the photos and posted them on Instagram and Facebook tagging each of us so that for any outsiders perusing their feeds, there would be no doubt about who was there. And, of course, who wasn't. Well, that was the old Rebecca. 
There were 12 of us, an even dozen. Occasionally, we made an exception to allow for more. For example, for Brandy's 40th, three years ago, we included two of her book club friends on the weekend trip to Chicago, bringing the total number to 14. Fourteen, we all agreed later, was too many. There was the thing with the spiked seltzers, to cite an example. One of the interlopers drank five white claws without offering to replenish when we Ubered to the liquor store. The other got very drunk during Brandy's birthday dinner out at Twain and was later sick at the Airbnb we had rented in Lincoln Park. We all agreed this made everybody uncomfortable and was not to be repeated. After, some of us remembered the pertinent facts we'd learned about Sherry that first day at the beach. Divorced, recently moved from Ohio, an 11-year-old daughter who would be entering sixth grade at the middle school. Upon hearing this news, we tried our best to appear inclusive. All of us have sixth grainers, said Dawn, so you'll be seeing a lot of us come fall. It all depends on what team she gets, offered Monica. True, said Dawn. Teams, said Sherry. Like sports teams? She was sitting on a striped beach towel. We remembered that she seemed woefully unprepared, having brought only a small mesh beach bag. The rest of us had our Tommy Bahama beach chairs slung low in the sand, hydro flasks in the cup holders. This woman had no water bottle that anyone could see, no Yeti full of cold brew, certainly no snacks to share. Though, of course, in her defense, one of us said later, how could she have known to bring snacks to share? Gina shook her head indulgently. No, it's the teams for the middle school, gold and crimson. She'll be on one or the other, and that will determine everything for the year. Everything, confirmed Monica. We could see that we were making the newcomer nervous, and many of us were okay with that. We were all relieved when one of our favorite surf instructors, Parker, approached the group. Who drives a white Acura? asked Parker whom we all agreed was very hot, especially when he pulled the top of his wetsuit down during the breaks between sessions, showcasing his phenomenal abs. I do, said the new woman. Some of us had forgotten her name already. Terry, was it? Mary? No, Sherry. It was Sherry. With an I. Some of us remembered that she'd told us that right away, as though anticipating an incorrect spelling. Rebecca does said Monica, a split second later. Rebecca, who was still down at the water's edge, had been distracted all morning. Nicole had seen her on her cell phone, having what she described as a very animated conversation. Did you park in the metered lot? Parker wanted to know. We all heard Sherry say that she wasn't in the metered lot. She was in the overflow. She hadn't known to get here early. Rebecca, of course, had known. First spot closest to the bathroom. I'm sure Rebecca got a meter, Monica told Parker. I think she got backed into, said Parker. Chloe said she saw someone leaving a note. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, 
clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.